0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest, it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 226. It's titled, How to Spot a Bubble and What to Do About It. Last month, I got an email from Hayden, and he was writing about cannabis investments. He wrote, I began investing in CGC, that's Cannabis Growth Corporation, back in June of this year at around $19 a share, and continued buying through this week over time. It's now trading north of $50. Per the app stockpile, I've grossed 101% return on my investment. I have some other friends who are seeing high returns on cannabis investments. My thought is now is a good time to take my winnings and not push my luck. Do you think we're in a bubble? Do you think there is still value in this market given the government's inching toward decriminalization? I responded, as I do, when listeners ask for sort of more specific advice that i Well, in this case, I don't know. I just didn't know. And if I did, I let him know I couldn't tell him because I'm not a registered investment advisor. So I'm not permitted to share my thoughts on a specific investment or investment strategy via email. And I kind of left it at that. Last week, though, I was in New York City happened to be at Dover Street Market, the clothing store, and the sales associate mentioned to me he's been investing via the Robinhood app in cannabis stocks, and he's made good money at it. And so I got to talking to him about why he made the investment, what about the earnings prospects of the companies, and it was completely eye-opening to him. He hadn't really considered why he bought it other than they thought the stock prices would go up. And, and I admit, I've been there when I first bought stocks. I didn't really, my first stock was Novell. I bought it because I thought it would go up. I had no idea what Novell did. So we talked about price to earnings ratio. What is the embedded growth rate priced into the stock? And that was that conversation. Later that week, I had a meetup with PLUS members. And a member mentioned he had just bought options on cannabis stocks recently. Now, both the sales associate and, and this Plus member mentioned that Canada was about to legalize cannabis. And that was the reason or one of the reasons for owning the stock. Next day, my sister and I were walking on Mercer Street. And we, got, we got stopped by a couple of, of hip hop artists that were selling CDs. I checked. His, I don't have a CD player. I checked with my sister to see if she had one. We we bought a couple CDs. We, we, we talked to him a little bit, and he mentioned... The one guy had mentioned buying some marijuana in California, and then as they were heading back to New York, they realized, well, it's not legal there, so they stopped off in Colorado to try it out there. But just before that... My sister and I, when well, she had noticed, there were some construction workers smoking pot at lunch. She and her husband are, are general contractors. who do a lot of work in the city remodeling retail stores. And, and so she was sort of shocked at this. I didn't know. I, I, I'll be honest. I've never smoked pot. I sort of, in high school, the potheads, they, they frankly, they were, they were losers. So I just didn't, I've just never really had an interest. So it so I don't even know what it smells like. I I spent the whole weeks thinking, man, there must be a, a skunk infestation in New York. So she pointed out. It's kind of a putrid skunk like smell. And sure enough, that's what it smells like. And but here and mentioned to my brother in law that they were smoking at lunch, and, and he says that they better not be it must not be a union job because union workers just they would they'd be kicked out kicked out so it got me thinking that there's well here's here's one sign of a bubble that i've noticed and i saw this during the internet bubble everyone talks about it sort of people that you would not be thinking investing had never invested in life are suddenly investing in that. Yesterday, three the cannabis stocks overall did very well. They're up on average around fourteen percent. Again, this week, apparently Canada is legalizing to some extent cannabis. Kronos Group is an example. It's up fifty percent year year to date. It's doubled since August. The price-to-earnings ratio, getting back to my conversation with the sales associates, is 2,720. The forward P.E. is 1,980. Growing revenue is up 500% from a year ago. Had $2.2 million in sales last quarter. Tilray is another one. T.L.R.Y. has gained 621% year-to-date at stock appreciation. Revenue up 90%. Canopy Growth Corporations, up 127%. Now, those latter two have losses. They're losing money. At the end, though, in looking at a Motley Fool article, they, they, I was trying to figure out what was going on. Why did they go up so much this week? They're all down 5 to 6% so far today. But the article said, in the end, all three of these companies will have to prove that they can live up to the lofty expectations of marijuana investors and produce continuing sustainable growth. It'll take time to see how successful they are at achieving this goal, but for now, shareholders have high hopes that things will go well for the cannabis industry. High hopes are a big part of what makes a bubble. Last April, Rob Arnott, Shane Shepard, and Bradford Cornell of Research Affiliates, they're a global leader according to the website and Smart Beta and Asset Allocation. They have great research on their site, including this paper. The paper was titled, Yes, It's a Bubble, So What? And then they give a definition of a bubble. They say it's a circumstance in which asset prices, one, offer little chance of any positive risk premium relative to bonds or cash using any reasonable projection of expected cash flows. A risk premium, that's the excess return. So they offer little chance of excess returns above bonds or cash using a reasonable projection of expected cash flows. And two, they are sustained because investors believe they can sell the asset to someone else for a higher price tomorrow with little regard for the underlying fundamentals. Now, in the case of cannabis stocks, the sales associate at Dover Street Market, he had no idea what the fundamentals were. He just thought it would go up because someone else would pay a higher price tomorrow. Or not, Shepard and Cornell go on and say, notably, there are markets in which few, if any buyers, care about the discounted future cash flows to the value of the asset. He's referring to what we discussed last week or the week before in terms of an asset's intrinsic value, its fair value. A company's stock price should reflect the present value, or the price in today's dollars, of its future dividends, which is the share of profits that the company pays out of its earnings. And so we discount that back. We put it in today's dollars. If earnings and dividends are going to be higher than what con- the consensus of investors believe, then the company's intrinsic value per share is higher than its current stock price. In other words, the stock is undervalued. I mean, that that's what investing is. So if we look at fundamentals of a particular investment strategy, we want to look at the cash flow, the expected cash flow in the future and put that in today's dollars, its present value. And that's just, that's, that's what investing is in that sense, right? Traditional, fundamental investing. Not the only way to invest. But it's, it's the basis of investing is we want to pay less than what we think something is worth. And the only way to do that is to figure out what it's worth. And that fair value is what it is worth in today's dollars. Now back to their definition. They're saying that a bubble is something where if you use reasonable projections of those expected cash flows, that the, the, the expectations are so high that there's no way that they will be realized. and so ultimately investors will be disappointed. And the bubble will burst. Or not, not goes on to say, most academics, especially adherents of neoclassical finance, will dismiss our arguments. After all, for every seller, there's a buyer. Because some investors like an asset at the prevailing price, the market must be efficient. And that's right. In fact, that's what markets are made of. You have the it's an auction market. Buyers and sellers. The sellers think the particular asset, the cannabis stock, is too expensive. They want to take profits. The buyer thinks perhaps it's undervalued. They're willing to pay for it for for whatever reason or not continue. Some level of cash flow expectations can justify any price. It's a matter of subjective judgment as to whether such lofty cash flow expectations are sensible, Implausible or preposterous? And that's what it comes down to. What What are the expectations of the investors? If a company's stock has a P.E. of over 1,700, the price you're paying for, for $1 for the earnings, you're paying $1,700 for $1 of earnings. But revenue has increased 500% over the past year. So, so where is... Where is it? Are the assumptions reasonable? They give the example of Tesla, where you know, it's kind of traded in a $350 range. It, it's sold off here recently. But they believe that Tesla is an example of a micro bubble. And here's what they are write. Tesla's current price is arguably fair. If most cars are powered by electricity in 10 years. If most of these cars are made by Tesla, if Tesla can make those cars with sufficient margin and quality control and can service the cars properly, and if Tesla can raise additional capital sufficient to cover a $3 billion annual cash drain and another billion to service its debt. To us, that seems an unduly optimistic array of of assumptions, especially given the magnitude of Tesla's debt burden. Such an argument ignores the deep pockets of competitors and the common phenomenon of disruptors being themselves disrupted by newcomers. Absent the unfolding of this rosy scenario, Tesla's current price would require remarkably aggressive assumptions to deliver a positive risk premium. For investors who agree with this assessment, Tesla constitutes a single stock micro bubble. We discussed Tesla back in, the I forget which episode it was. was This year we talked about electric cars. And that's what makes up markets. But it comes down to, we have to have an assessment as investors of the assumptions. Are they reasonable? Or are they stretched in terms of where, where we are. Now, that's for an individual stock. For a sector and, and broad market bubbles, they say they're, they're much rarer. In this case, the, the implausible set of circumstances are not right, must prevail. So collectively, there is these huge assumptions baked in. The internet bubble was a great example. Very similar to cannabis stocks. Everyone had their favorite names. Many had never invested before. I had taxi drivers suggesting stock picks to me. And in some ways, I didn't know. It was a really interesting time. I bought two companies at the peak. I was so sick of the internet bubble. I thought, well, what if? And I'll circle back to this toward the end of the episode. How do we deal with with bubbles, but I participated in that in a certain way that I'll get to later. They write, The 1990-2000 to tech or dot-com bubble is the poster child for a broad market bubble. At the height of the bubble, aggressive assumptions were required to believe the entire U.S. stock market would deliver a positive risk premium relative to then-prevailing bond and cash yields. For the tech sector in particular, to deliver a positive risk premium compared to the 6% bond yield at the time, because again, we're looking at what's, what excess return are you giving above bonds? So above bonds, if it's yielding 6%, positive risk premium, your return would have to be greater than bonds. They're right. Most tech stocks would have to produce rapid growth far into the future, even though few could have succeeded unless their fiercest fiercest competitors we're struggling. And then they pointed out, and I actually shared this last week in the weekly Insider's Guide that I, that I share. I, I include an essay or, or something that didn't necessarily make it into that week's podcast. And In some way, it was a preview of this week's podcast, but I shared this study where if you looked at the 10 largest market cap tech stocks in the United States, they comprise 25% ...of the S&P 500 index. That's Microsoft, Cisco, Intel, IBM, AOL, Oracle, Dell, Sun, Qualcomm, and HP. And over the next 18 years, not a single one of those stocks beat the market. Five produced average returns of about 3.2% a year compounded. That was much lower than the market. Two failed outright... And the other five produced negative returns. And and those that lost money, on average, they lost 7.2% a year, or about 12.6% a year less than the S&P 500. And again, it wasn't that these companies weren't going to have a huge impact on the economy overall, but it's what is the expectation priced into the stock? Now, Arnott and his, his colleagues believe we're in that the bubble, there's a bubble in the US stock market today. That the seven largest cap stocks in the world are, are tech stocks Alphabet, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, Tencent, Alibaba, some FANGs, and some others. But they point out, on average, history shows that just two stocks on that top 10 list, remain on the list a decade later. So they don't all fall off, but the two survivors, they point out, is usually one of them the number one stock. But even that tends to underperform later on. The second surviving stock has about a 50-50 chance of beating the market. And they say, if history repeats, nine of the top ten market cap stocks will underperform the market over the next ten years. Think about that. Nine out of the top ten. And that's one reason that one of the things that are not research affiliates, they believe in what's known as fundamental indexing. Where you're not buying, you're not waiting based on size. You're weighting based on revenue or other attributes. So you don't necessarily, you don't have a, you basically underweight the most expensive stocks and the biggest stocks. Not by a huge amount, but it's enough to tilt fundamental indexing to deliver some excess return over time. Before we look at what we do once we've identified a bubble, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H dot slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. So what do you do if you believe there's a bubble? There's an asset or an individual stock where you believe that the assumptions priced into the stocks are just unrealistic, preposterous. And that the majority of the holders are just expecting, they're not even doing fundamental analysis. They're just expecting that the, sort of the greater fool theory, that somebody else will come along and buy the asset at a higher price. Or not, and his colleagues suggest, well, what about shorting? Shorting is where you borrow shares and you benefit. You borrow shares, you sell them. Hopefully the stock falls in price. You buy the shares back. And you deliver them to the, to the entity you borrowed them from. You, it's all done through your broker. But they point out, if you, if you go long, if you buy an investment, your maximum loss is 100%. But if you short an asset or an individual stock, the, the potential losses are unlimited. As they, if it keeps going up in price, your losses compound. So it it's a risky strategy. There are other ways to, to approach it if there's a bubble. One, you just don't own it. You eliminate your exposure to bubble assets. It's easy to do. And again, I don't know if cannabis stocks are in a bubble or not. I haven't sat and done the research. They sh- they look expensive, but I've not looked at all the opportunity. I don't I don't know. But I haven't done the research, I don't own them. And with any bubble, you can choose not to own it. If you're concerned about the valuation of the U.S. stock market with its Schiller price to earnings ratio of 30, in other words, it's cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio, which is the PE over the based on earnings over the past decade. If you're concerned about that, then you cannot. You could be underweight. The U.S. stock market makes up 56% of the global stock market. You could have less than 56% of your stock exposure in the U.S. You could use fundamental indexing for your U.S. component and not have as big, as, big of weight in some of those big cap technology stocks. The other suggestion they make is to participate in an anti-bubble. in. Invest that way in an asset class that doesn't appear to, to where essentially investors feel, feel are overly pessimistic. they a little difficult, right, in today's environment because there aren't that many opportunities where you can say something is definitely cheap. Everything is fairly expensive. And, and those things that are less expensive, they have warts. I mean, that's just part of investing. Emerging markets, we've talked about that in a number of episodes. Talk about it a lot on money for the rest of us plus. They're definitely cheaper, but there's there's also, there's risk. There's uncertainty. There's always uncertainty when it comes to investing. During the internet bubble, there it was sort of focused on, on the tech and the U.S., but there was still opportunity in value stocks were cheap, real estate investment trust were cheap. But now we're 10 years into, almost 10 years into an economic recovery and bull market. There's not so much cheap. But after there's a crash, then there's a lot of, so let's say you avoid it and you kind of have that fear of missing out. You don't participate in the bubble and it feels terrible. As things keep going up as an individual investor, we don't have the career risk that a professional does as they underperform over several years because they're not overweight or, or even market weight in the bubble like assets. But once things fall apart, oftentimes there's some pessimism and you're able to buy things. Very inexpensive. Are not Talks about junk bonds, and I've talked about that. High yield bonds in 2009. You could earn stock-like returns investing in bonds following the market crash. You didn't even have to take stock risk. You can also diversify. The third thing you do is diversify. Again, if there's not really a straight anti-bubble, you just diversify into non-bubble, things that aren't in a bubble. Maybe they're not super, super cheap. But again because instead of being fully part allocated to the bubble asset you can diversify into other areas even into private markets fourth you can just be patient you can hold cash you can take advantage of the optionality of cash and and just wait and not if there's no real anti bubble and, and there's nothing really compelling right now we actually are and we talked about it last week you you get paid at least you can maintain inflation or earn so you're not losing money on a real basis investing in ultra short-term bonds right now and some cash equivalents and finally but it still feels bad to be not participating in a bubble And I mentioned during the internet bubble, I finally, I didn't throw in the towel. I didn't really have, I had avoided many of these companies, but it was sort of early 2000. And I said, well, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm missing something. And I feel bad because I I don't have a stock to talk about because everyone else had theirs that's doing very well. So I bought Cisco Systems, one of those top 10s companies that outperform, underperformed lagged the overall market over the next 18 years. And I bought JDS Uniphase because its initials matched mine. And I didn't put my, I put less than $5,000 in it. And they did underperform, but I, I was participating. So if you, maybe you buy a few cannabis stocks. We don't know whether it it's in a bubble or not. Maybe the promise is out there that they would do very, very well. I don't know. But as long as you allocate, just play money, you know, enough that if you lost it all or they underperform, it wouldn't be devastating. But if it did well, you, you would make a nice profit. I mean, you can certainly, you can still participate. It's sort of bubble insurance is what it is. And the other thing you can do is just find counter arguments. I've mentioned I've not done a whole lot of research on, on cannabis, but I, I did a little bit. I found an interesting article by Annie Lowry in The Atlantic. It was called America's Invisible Pot Addicts, and it talked about how, how some are basically they're smoky pot daily. And they quote Kevin Sabet, he was an Obama administration official, and he's founder of the nonprofit Smart Approaches to Marijuana. Sabat says, the reckless way that we are legalizing marijuana so far is mind-boggling from a public health perspective. The issue now is that we have lobbyists, special interests, and peoples whose motivation is to make money that are writing all of these laws and taking control of the conversation. And Lowry points out, in terms of long-standing risk, the lack of federal involvement in legalization has meant That marijuana products are not being safety tested like pharmaceuticals, measured and dosed like food products, subjected to agricultural safety and pesticide standard like crops, and held to labeling standards like alcohol. Although some of it's being done at the state level, but it's kind of the Wild West when it comes to cannabis. And so one risk is that, let's say it becomes legal across the U.S., but there's restrictions. Maybe there's even a cannabis tax that discourages people from using it. So there are counter arguments that suggest maybe the growth expectations are too high. But if we actually look at some of those things, that can help us maybe temper our enthusiasm for a bubble and approach things in a more reasonable, rational approach. Because the fear of missing out is strong. So maybe invest a little bit, look for counter arguments, look for anti-bubbles, maybe underweight if you think that the expectations are just too optimistic. And that's episode 226. I'll have the show notes to this episode in at MoneyForTheRestOfUs.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free insider. Scott, you would have gotten, last week, you would have gotten a preview of this episode because I actually talked about, I didn't know I was going to do the episode on this, but there's content that there that's free that you can sign up to at MoneyForTheRestOfUs.com. While you're there, also check out Money For The Rest Of Us Plus. It's our membership community. I hosted a, a luncheon in New York last week when I travel. Lepro and I will often do that. And you'll get those invites as a PLUS member and, and be able to participate in that. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I'm not provided investment advice. Simply general education on money, investing, in the economy. Have a great week.